You can uh, be seated and we'll dismiss the school-aged kids to the back. Let's see, who are they going with today? Okay, I see Liam back there. All right. Um, while they're doing that, if you want to kind of find where we're going to be today, um, we're bouncing around a little bit in, uh, in Genesis 12 and in Matthew 9. I want to read just a quick picture, and you've heard this before, um, out of Revelation chapter 7. This is not on the screen, but as we sang that song, it just this picture, when we look from this eternal perspective, we know this is where things are headed. So we get a glimpse of this in the book of Revelation in chapter 7, verse 9, it says, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we see just quickly that this is where things are headed. Like one day, that is the reality of what those in this room who belong to the family of God will be part of this great group. And not just us, but everyone. And I love, and you see the heart of God for the nations and for all of those that are lost. His his heart is for them, so much so that we see the culmination of this picture in the book of Revelation is every tribe and nation and tongue, representatives from them are all standing in one big family of God worshiping worshiping him. And this is kind of what this song, the refrain of this song talks about is, you know, thousands and thousands of people, all the people of the earth, even the earth itself, which is crying, right, for, for redemption. This heart of God for all people. And the scripture that uh, Jason read this morning is uh, scripture reading in Matthew 9. You see this heart of Jesus even there as he's going through all the cities and villages proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing diseases. And it says in verse 36 of, chapter, of Matthew 9 that he had compassion for the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. And that's another probably familiar verse. And as we kind of end this series on multiply, I kind of want to make this argument that it has been the heart of God from the very beginning of time, from even his essence, is this idea of multiplying his image in us as we reflect his image and we glorify him. His heart has always been for the nations. It's not been for one particular group. It's always been this wide vision of the heart of God for those that he loves. And that was the very heartbeat of Jesus Hebrews says that Jesus was the exact representation of who the Father is. So we know who God is by looking at Jesus. And we know who Jesus is through the revealed word of God as the Holy Spirit illuminates it to us. And as we kind of walk through just uh, another few large portions of Scripture today, I want that to echo in our heart. We see a couple things, distinct things in this passage in Matthew 9 that I want to kind of set the tone. And then we're going to get to Genesis 12. One, we see the heart of Jesus. The heart of God for the lost. He had compassion for them. Heart-moving, life-altering compassion. It literally means to be, uh, the Greek word, to be moved as to one's bowels. Like 
If you've ever gotten such bad news or such good news that you felt it in your gut, I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about. And this is what it means to be moved with compassion to that level. God's heart for the lost is so evident. Second, his plan to reach these peoples were through his disciples. Jesus didn't say, hey, if you would pray for us to have a bigger stage or for us to have a louder microphone or for church growth strategists to get this thing together or some clever ad campaign, his plan was that the lost would be reached by the church through his disciples. And finally, Jesus believed in the power of prayer. And he asked his people to pray. James would later say that the continual prayer of the righteous availeth much. It accomplishes much. Now this idea of reaching the loss or redemption of the people of earth was not a new thing. No, not at all. The plan of redemption began with Israel. God's heart for them They were designated as God's chosen people. The question is, what were they chosen for and what difference does that make in our lives several thousand years later? God made his commitment to humanity clear way back in the Old Testament that he was going to bring men and women from every nation, this we read uh, in, in Revelation 7, every nation back into a vital, loving relationship with himself. He created in Adam and Eve this paradise right and everything was good and they communed and walked with God the father and everything was good until sin entered the world and it broke it marred that relationship and it it marred and broke the image of God that we carry around being born in his very image and God is committed to bringing restoration to that and he he chose a select group of people to be the vessels through whom he would fulfill this divine mission through multiplication. Actually, when God launched that first initiative, they weren't even a people group yet. They were just a guy. It was just Abraham. And we're introduced to Abraham in Genesis 12. So I invite you to get there. We're going to read just a few verses there. And this is a phenomenal story that you could spend, uh, spend an hour just reading Abraham. And we need to know who Abraham is because most all the faith Christian, uh, certainly Jewish, um, even some of uh, Islam, all kind of ties back to Abraham in some way. So even if you're not a believer in Jesus, it would be good to know who this guy named Abraham is. And I love the story of Abraham because he didn't just let life happen to him. He impacted life. He didn't just go with the flow. He stood against his family and society. He redefined culture. Abraham was a man who multiplied his life, and he gives us a picture of how God wants to use each and every one of us in this very room to multiply our lives for the glory of God and for the growth of his kingdom. But when his story starts, Abraham's got nothing. His little tragic irony at how the writer sets up the story, Abram's name literally means father. But when we're introduced to him, he's 75, and he has no kids. This thing's looking pretty gloomy from the start. Later on, God changes his name to Abraham, which means the father of many. But even at that point, he still is without kid. His life is like a cruel joke in some way. He seems to have this destiny written into him by his very name and the meaning of it. But he's nearing the end of his life. 
and he's got nothing to show for it. Almost like life is mocking him. Not just his name, but the promise of God to him seems ironic, if not funny. Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Let's read that in Genesis 12. Starting verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, in verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who you bless and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I don't know if you normally write in your Bible or highlight in your device. I'd encourage you to underline or highlight that. We see this Abrahamic covenant many, 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 many times in Scripture. It's referred back to. This is, this is, the, um, this is the initiation of God's redemption plan. Just as he had promised Adam and Eve that there would be a promised seed that would come to restore what had been, what had been broken. This is where we see it happen, happening in the person of Abraham. And to make sure it's clear, this covenant is repeated, like I said many times, in Genesis 18, um, in Genesis 22, in chapter 26 of Genesis, and chapter 28 of Genesis, again and again, it's being clear that God is repeating this promise that he made to Abraham, that through Abraham and his line, ultimately we see that's going to point to Christ, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. But the covenant was both a promise and a challenge. Now, most of us, we like the promise part. In time, Israel would become a nation, and they were chosen, right, to be a funnel for God's blessing, not a bucket. They were chosen to be a river that would carry, right, this blessing through to thousands upon thousands, not a lake that just got bigger and bigger. And God still wants to accomplish what he began when he instituted this plan of redemption, reaching the entire world. He never intended that Israel would become grace collectors, but grace channels. This heart of multiplication is woven through, as I said, all of Scripture. I want to take just a quick tour of what that is. And we're going to go fast, but you can, (coughs) excuse me, maybe write these references down and come back to them. But first, let's go to God's initial mandate in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Speaking of Adam and Eve, and he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. God makes man in his image. We carry around the very likeness of God and his hopes is that we would reflect his image, that we would mirror his glory to all of the world, that we would be fruitful and multiply. Not that we would just fill the earth with people, but it would be a fruitful humanity, that humans would flourish and they would work to cultivate the great gifts that God had given him. We see this idea of multiplication. Then we see it with Noah and the post-flood command after God had flooded the earth because of the sin that was going on. It says in chapter 9 and verse 1 of Genesis, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We see it here in the promise to Abraham that I will bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky in Genesis 22, as the sands on the, on the seashore, and through your offsprings, all the nation of the earth will be blessed. We see it in Exodus 1-7, in this Egyptian miracle as God's people. It says, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful 
They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Here's just one example of the literal fulfillment of God's purpose in so many of these Old Testament stories. Genesis 49 says that Jacob calls his son Joseph a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over the wall. It's this picture that God's grace is extending not just, not just to Israel, but from Israel to the surrounding nations. The story of Joseph details how one of these chosen people fulfilled this Jewish mandate by crossing his cultural lines and bringing the Gentile world the love of God. A few chapters later in Joshua 21, as they're in the promised land, it says the Lord gave Israel all the land that he had sworn to give them to their ancestors, and they took possession of it, and they settled there in verse 45, and not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled, including that promise that he had made to Abraham that God would multiply his seed, and he would become the father of many nations. And through, those, through the very nation of Israel, the entire earth would one day be blessed. You read this as you read the book of Psalms, just on a kind of side note, you'll catch this. You'll read through the book of Psalms, and it'll name the people that are there, that they have the the Israelites, and they have the Levites, who are the the, the priestly tribe and different. And then it also uses this term, the God-fearers. And these were these people that weren't inherently... um, Uh, a part of the uh, Israel nation, but they were the people who were being blessed through the very promises of God made to Abraham. So they were Gentile. They were part of this Egyptian miracle we talked about that kind of connected themselves to the people of Israel and followed through. You'll see that as you read the book of Psalms. It's pretty interesting. But even more than that, as Israel goes through this cycle of sinning against God and being captured in the Babylonian captivity in Jeremiah 29, God says to them, multiply there and do not decrease. Then prophetically speaking in Jeremiah 23 of the post-Babylonian captivity, he says, then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I've driven them and I will bring them back to the fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Again, this is not just talking about a country getting bigger. This is talking about the image of God going forth, of Israel being this conduit that would take this relationship with God, this love of God, and the fact that God loves people and sharing it with all the nations that they come in contact with. So much so that we get to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus on the scene, and he says to them, these disciples he's calling, hey, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that is exactly what's happening here. It would take us another hour or two to see all the places this is happening through the life of Jesus and ministry of Jesus. And we see it kind of fulfillment, of course, in Revelation. But along the way, as the church grows through the book of Acts, we'll note those things as we walk through that series starting next week. But just to recap the highlights quickly, Jesus takes a bunch of blue-collar fishermen mostly, disciples them, and sends them out. After his death, that gathered on the Mount of Ascension, and he gives them this great commission, and you're familiar with it, Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Another place that you might underline, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are to go out as his disciples, teaching people to obey, to observe all that he's commanded. The young little church goes and prays. 
They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And then the Holy Spirit does come on the day of, Pente- the, the day of Pentecost. And the church begins to grow. And these miracles are happening. And Scripture says that as the church were meeting daily and sharing these things and sitting under the disciples' teaching and breaking bread together, that the church begins to grow. The numbers, they were being added to daily. And then persecution happens. The church scatters, and that's when real multiplication begins to happen as the church begins to multiply. What was this little small movement of a hundred or so disciples begins to really grow. Thousands upon thousands of people are coming to Christ and following the way at risk of their life and losing everything they have, but what they have found is something better than anything they could have held on to before. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, in the midst of this persecution, it says, and walking in the fear of the Lord, speaking of the church, and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. A few chapters later in Acts 13, we see the the first church planter sent out as the church in Antioch are fasting and praying. And God says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work I have for them. And they go out and they start this church planting journey. And you can read through Paul's letters to these churches as he's starting these, these, uh, these new churches. And um, eventually him and Barnabas would break off and two missionary teams were now going out planting churches. And drawing near the end of Paul's life, we see the gospel has made it all the way to Rome. It's interesting as you read through the book of Acts that he shows up in Rome and we, we don't think anything's happening in Rome. And it says, and the brothers greeted him when he got there. Like the gospel had gone farther than he had, quicker than he had. In Caesar's own household, there are Christians. In Acts 19, we see that the gospel is in Asia and it's still spreading. 60 years later, by AD 60, it's in Ukraine and on and on it went. We could put a map up here as the Christianity just continued to grow like wildfire. The church crossed cultural lines and blessed the world with the love of God, and that purpose has not changed. God still wants to accomplish what he began when he instituted the plan of redemption, reaching the entire world. He does not get tired of that. That is not boring to him. But he never intended that Israel would become grace collectors, but grace channels. He never intended that the church would become a lake. Us building bigger and bigger and trying to grow bigger and bigger. Because this is not about us. It's about us being a river, not a lake. And we have to make that decision. We have to make that decision as an organization where we're going to put our money and our effort and, and, and where, we're going to, where we're going to place our vision and how we're going to get there. But you also have to make that commitment as an individual. You have to ask yourself that question. Am I going to be someone that allows God to use my life to be multiplied into others? Or am I like the guy Jesus talks about that just foolishly thinks I'm just going to build bigger and bigger and bigger barns and I'm going to keep everything for myself? When God blesses you, the bucket mentality is a hard one to resist. Every pay raise, we think maybe I can get more fun things, more fun toys. Every, every unexpected check that comes in the mail that maybe I should just, you know, elevate my level of spending and enjoyment of this life. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't enjoy this life. But God has blessed you so that you can be a blessing to others. 
Go read Psalm 67. It ends with that very thing that we've been blessed so that we can be a blessing. Because we wrestle against this bucket mentality, it's hard to resist. Many of us tend to focus too much on the promise that is involved that God will bless the world by neglecting the challenge that was involved in that very first covenant that God made with Abraham. And that challenge is that it would be spread through us. For a while, the bucket mentality continued into the formation of the church and the same resistance to outreach that had plagued the Jews before Jesus came continued to plague the Jews who recognized he was the Christ. The call of the church is to connect the world with the good news of God's love, and it still is. Thousands of years after the Bible was written, our job is not much different than that very first mandate that God gave to Abraham only 12 chapters in. And in the midst of this great darkness, God calls a man who barely knows who he is in Abraham and one who is childless and tells him he's going to make from him a great nation of people who will worship and follow him and he'll bless the whole earth with the knowledge of God. And this is a promise that you and I inherited. You see, to make a long story short, one of Abraham's descendants was Jesus. In Christ, God offered salvation to the whole world, and we who are in Christ are now commissioned to bless the world by taking the news about Jesus to all the families in the world. It's interesting in Matthew's gospel where we get the clearest expression of the Great Commission. Matthew also opens up with his genealogy, tracing his family line between Abraham and Jesus. The Great Commission is an extension of the promise that God made to Abraham. So Abraham's promise becomes our promise, and his experience serves as a model to us. Abram's call presents each of us with a few questions that I think we need to ask. First, Am I really following God? I want all of us to ask that question, that you would ask that question of yourself. Am I really following God? This is a question about who is really in charge of your life. Who is really in charge? Like a lot of us, a lot of us think that we're following God until God goes a different direction. Don't we? We feel like, man, this following God thing is easy as long as we're in the blessing part of the promise and not the challenge part of the promise. This is a really, question, really a question about who is in charge of your life. I love in, in Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham to go from your country, it says in verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And we read that and gloss over the cost that is costing Abram at this point. That he is leaving everything he knows. It would be like asking you to leave uh, all your training and all your education and all your financial stability. I want you to walk away from everything that you've ever known and I want you to go to a place and God doesn't even tell Abraham where he's going. Can you even imagine? 
When we took a step out to come plant this church, we had a lot of questions. We were leaving a pretty secure job with, with a really good uh, uh, benefits package. And so we started asking those logistical questions about how are we going to get paid and who's going to pay the insurance and where are we going to live? And can I tell you this? When we had to take a step of faith, we didn't know the answers to a lot of those things. Now multiply that a couple times, times a thousand, and we see what a, the question that God is asking Abraham. Abram at that point, Abram, I want you to follow me. And I'm not going to tell you where I'm going. And, and, I, and I'm not going to tell you exactly how you're going to get there. And I'm not going to tell you all the provisions. Remember that Abraham and God don't have this like long-lasting relationship at this point. God entered on the scene and started talking to Abraham and say, I want you to follow me. I love how John Calvin summarized God's call to Abraham here. This is from his commentary. God says to Abraham, just close your eyes and take my hand. I love that. Just close your eyes and take my hand. How many of us would admit that sometimes we have a trust problem, right? I don't even like riding in the car with someone else. I've told you this. I want to be driving. Um, I, I want to be the one in charge. I can't ride roller coasters. I'm not going to trust, you know, life and death to some ninth grader who's working the, the kill switch up there. It, just not, it is not going to happen, right? I've got some trust issues when it comes to those things. And God is talking to Abraham and saying, Abraham, I'm going to do these great things. I mean, the promise is pretty awesome for Abraham. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you to a new land, and I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And, and through you, through you, Abram, I'm going I'm to bless the entire world. There is no greater promise that could have been given. And, 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 and no, no fewer things to back it up at that point. Abraham wasn't where he was going. He was doing all that he knew to do. He was leaving every financial security that, 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 that he had for him. He was leaving everything to go to a place that he didn't even know where he was going. Most of us, especially in the West, we get, we get way too caught up in the, in, in, in the what and the how when the focus should really be on the who. On the who. Just close your eyes and take my hand. I love that. But God, what, what about where I'm going? And how will I, how will I, how will I know when I get there? And, 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 and how, how are we going to provide for my family and the, and the livestock? And my, how, are we gonna, how are we going to do all these things? God whispers to Abraham, just close your eyes and take my hand. The question for us is, am I really following God? Really following God? That as his Holy Spirit prompts you that you're ready to take a step of obedience. What I find as I counsel people a lot is most of us aren't following God. We're, we're following the vision of God, who we want God to be. Like that he just comes alongside and just helps us get there. He's the, he's the, he's the you know, the genie that, uh, that when, we, we're, when we're in a, when we're in a bind that we're just going to call him to give us some kind of magical wish or gives us you know, extra power. He's the, uh, told my kids this this week, he's the, he's Popeye spinach. And my kid said, who is Popeye? <laughs> Are you kidding me that you don't know who Popeye is? We feel like God is uh, just, you know, in our pocket and we can pull him out whenever we get ourselves in a bind. But that's not the God of the Bible. 
God's call has always been to step out and follow him. Question one, are you, are you really following God? Not do you believe the right things about him, although we believe doctrine is extremely important, but not just believing the right things on an obedience level of the heart. One of my pastor friends says all the time that it's like writing a blank check and putting it on the center of the table. You lay your yes down on the table and let God put it on the map. You put your yes on the table and let God put it on the map. Now that takes a lot of faith, friends. Are you really following God? Second, have I offered my blessing back to God to be multiplied for his kingdom? Have, have I offered my blessing back to God to be multiplied for his kingdom? Becoming a Christ follower means viewing everything in your life as something to be multiplied for God's kingdom. Everything. God is a good father and he is a rich giver. And he loves to give good gifts to his children. But he doesn't give us blessings simply for us to enjoy them all by ourselves. He blesses us so that we can offer those blessings back to God. Then he can multiply those blessings in the lives of others. Think about how blessed we are. You may even be walking through a pretty difficult time, but I mean, we, we, are, we are really blessed people. Not only do we have an abundance and savings accounts and pantries and refrigerators full of food that might spoil and go bad, that we're blessed there, but we have access to the gospel. And it's churches on every corner, and I pray those churches are really preaching the gospel. I was reading this morning that there are over, depending on how you exactly look at it, over 7,000 people groups across the world that are unreached. That means that they do not have any access to the gospel. 7,000. I think, you know, it's 2018, and we've, you know, we've got... Uh, Everybody in the world has, has a cell phone, and it's just, and even, even in third world countries, people are having this. How in the world are there still 7,000 unreached people groups? It's because the church has got a bucket mentality. Oh, it's just about us. We just got to, we got to, we got to, we got to build bigger things, and we got to, we got to grow, and all the money is focused on the people, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but that is not why we're here. Have you offered your blessings back to God to be multiplied for his kingdom? Your job, your family, your home, your finances, your schedule, everything. If God is the giver of all the good gifts that we have, we are not owners of those things, but we are stewards of those things. And he's entrusted it to us with with the Great Commission, and say, listen, Luke, I want you to know my heart. It's for the nations. It's for your neighbors that don't know yet. It's for all the lost sons and daughters across the earth that don't have access or they've never seen a real gospel example life. They've never had an invitation to a restored life with God. They, they just don't know. So, Luke, I want you to know my heart is for them, and I am sending you to them, 
and I'm going to give you blessings upon blessings upon blessings so you would steward them to that end. It's so discouraging sometimes, if I can be honest with you as a pastor, that we have to stand on our head and talk to her blue in the faith just to get someone's attention so that they would begin to open up their hands. Most of us live in this bucket, closed-handed life where we feel it's just about moving our status in society and to ask you to go meet a neighbor or invite someone who doesn't know Jesus into your life or even just to begin tithing is like this supernatural ask of you. And that's just normal Christianity. When we see people's hearts and lives literally changed by the gospel, the woman at the well, she's, Jesus encounters her, shares the love of God with her. She immediately goes to her people. And it said there were many and many believed in Samaria because of this woman. It's just the nature of, of what disciples do. We, we go and we share this good news. I'd love for you to wrestle with that question maybe over lunch. Have you offered your blessing back to God so that it could be multiplied for his kingdom? Here's a great encouragement in this promise, 2 Corinthians 9.10. You ought to write that down if you can. It says, he who supplies seed to the sower will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. I love that. He who gave us the blessing in the first place, when we give that over to him, when we give the seed, he's talking about financial giving in this, but certainly it applies to all the other domains that we've been talking about. When we live an open-handed life, when we live more like the river instead of the lake analogy, when we live with open hands looking for places where we can invest our seed for sowing, then God will supply and multiply our seed and increase the harvest of righteousness. Why did God bless you? You ever thought about that? When you look at these other countries and people are malnourished and it's just so heartbreaking, but you happen to be born in America where you have all your needs met. Why did God bless you? So that you could bless others. So that he could multiply your seed in the lives of others. You see, becoming a Christ follower means a fundamental reshaping of your life. You look at everything you've been given as seed for sowing. You think about your job. God's given you that job as seed for sowing. He wants to multiply that. And that doesn't mean you don't do a good job. No, that means you do the best job. You're the best architect. You're the best plumber so that you can point everything you're working with, right? You can point it all back to God to give him glory. And you look for ways that you can display and declare the gospel. Everything you've been given as seed for sowing. There's two things that you can do with seed. You can grind it up for food and eat it. And it feeds you. Or you can plant it. 
and it feeds thousands. Two things we can do with seed. We can, as wheat, for example, we can harvest the wheat and grind it up and eat it for ourselves and it feeds us for a day. Or we can take that seed and we can plant it. And we'll never know the ultimate effect as it has on thousands and thousands of people. Jason talked about this as Jesus was speaking about the kingdom being like a seed. Calling us to have to die to ourselves and our comfort. Maybe even some of our dreams. So that we can see God do untold things through our lives. As we get in the book of Acts in the coming weeks, you're going to see this gospel being birthed. It's going to be, I hope it's as beautiful and challenging to you as it is, has been to me studying it. As we wrap up and move into a time of communion, this is a way that we celebrate this every week, that we remember all that God has done for us through Christ Jesus. And we remember all that he's calling us to do as we leave here with the very gospel, the good news of Jesus planted in us. I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to come and play and our servers are going to come. Be ready to have communion. But I want you to really wrestle with those two questions. Am I really following God and have I offered my blessing back to him to be multiplied for his kingdom? And as we prepare our heart for communion, maybe we would ask those very things. God, thank you for your gift of grace. Lord, thank you for the good news that have, that's radically changed our life. That many that came before us decided that they wouldn't live in such a way as to hoard these blessings for themselves, but they would live open-handed lives. And Father, I pray that you would help us to articulate what that really looks like for us. For some, I'm sure it means financially giving more. For others, it's taking a bold and courageous step to invite a neighbor over for coffee or dinner. To love on them, invest in their life. Share the gospel with them. Lord, I pray for Covenant Church, even as we end today, that that we wouldn't become a lake, hoarding our resources for ourselves. But Lord, that we would be a channel, we'd be a river that you would bring thousands and ten thousands into your kingdom because of the obedience of these people in this room. Thank you for your gift to us, grace and the cross of Jesus. I pray that it's very real to us as we enter into a time of communion. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I'll be in the back if you need to pray with someone. A communion is offered.